0: Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to Vim Vendors. In his new film, Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, Vendors interviews the leader of the Catholic Church, who's gained attention over the past five years for his outspoken views on climate change, poverty, child abuse, and more. Venders says he was drawn in by the Pope's namesake, Saint Francis of Assisi.
1: It meant a lot to me when I was a little boy. Mm. He was the only saint I could sort of put a name to. Mm. I knew what he stood for. He talked to the birds and he called all animals, brothers and sisters, and I thought really, that really got my imagination.
0: Vendors grew up in post-war Germany, and took inspiration from american comic books, music and movies. In the early 1970s, he was part of the new german cinema movement. Among his best-known fiction films are Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire. Over the past 20 years, he's made a string of acclaimed documentaries, including Buena Vista Social Club about the cuban music group, Pina, a 3D celebration of choreographer Pina Bausch, and The Salt of the Earth profiling the Brazilian photographer Sebastio Salgado. In Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, we watch the Pope speak directly to camera on a range of topics. Vendors interweaves these conversations with footage from the Pope's travels around the world and also scenes from the life of St. Francis, shot in black and white as if they came from a silent movie. Vendors is now 72, He sat down with me in a Manhattan office, having just returned from the Cannes Film Festival, where his film had its world premiere. I asked him to describe his own religious upbringing.
1: I was born right after the war. Catholic family. My father was a doctor with a very Catholic ethos. He was living his life with his parents and he lived his faith very convincingly. So I grew up. Catholic school,
0: altar boy, all this stuff. And, uh, I mean, as I understand it, when you reached a certain age, you, you drifted away from it.
1: Yeah. Before I drifted away, I was intensely considering even becoming a priest at the age of 15, 16. But then rock and roll, pinball machines and movies came and I started drifting away and then became a student in philosophy and was influenced by existentialism. And then 68 came and I was a socialist and the 70s came with all the temptations and I just moved away from my Christian belief only to return the late 80s, early 90s in a big way and realize I'd been looking all over but I should have looked closer to home because that's where I was happy. Hmm. Came back to my Christian belief at the age of fifty or
0: so, and so when you say so you went back to your Christian beliefs, was it on different terms?
1: It was on different terms. I was no longer Catholic. I, I converted to Protestantism and uh, lived in America, and that changed it a lot because American communities are so different from the, the churches I knew in in Germany, in Germany both Protestant and Catholic churches are paid for by the state, so when they collect your taxes, they also collect your church taxes. In America, it was much more livelier, I felt, and the parishes were living off their flock, so Mm. to speak, and so I liked that much better, so. And I was in America in a Presbyterian community. Returning to Germany, and well, it's now always more than 10 years ago I'm a ecumenical Christian really I share my time I go to both Catholic and Protestant services and I really try to make the most out of
0: all churches and get the best of everything in it. Well, you, knowing that you'd had this background in philosophy and kind of left the church and came back to a church, it seems like the the, the biggest thing to, one of the biggest things to reckon with there is a belief in God. And it sounds like you came back to a belief in God.
1: Yep. And you can see that in my movies. If you look at Wings of Desire or Far Away So Close or other films, I do believe in a, friendly God who sees us with loving eyes. And that, in effect, really changes the whole ballgame and really has an effect on everything you do. If you have that belief that you're being seen, it changes a lot. It changes your attitudes.
0: Hmm. So uh, this film on Pope Francis, I understand that someone at the Vatican reached out to you to see if you'd be interested. Yeah, because
1: who would have thought to make a film
0: with or about the Pope,
1: that wasn't in my life plan. And until one day this letter arrived, would you be inclined to talk talk with us about the possibility of speaking to the Pope and making a film with the Pope. So sure, that was enticing. I took a deep breath and walked around the block and thought, well, wait a minute, would I do that, could I do that? Under which conditions could I do that? And then I went and talked with him and realized they that didn't have in mind that they would produce a film. They had in mind to just plant a seed, and then if I was interested, and then we'd have to find an independent production, finance the film independently, distribute it independently. I should make it as much as possible in my own film. That was not even a concept. I would have to even write a treatment. They really just, wanted to throw the idea at me, because obviously no filmmaker would come up with the idea, so they suggested it, and I was lucky that they asked me first, and I said yes, and it then became an independent production, and they kept entirely out of it. I had access, very privileged access, as you see in the film, to Pope Francis, access to their archives, and I informed them what I was doing. They saw the film, as they saw a cut, but they never, ever requested any change, and stuck to their promises.
0: It was sometimes hard for me to tell what footage in there you had shot and what footage you had got from the Vatican archives. There's one shot in particular where the Pope is talking to a room full of cardinals and there's a pan across the faces of these cardinals, which uh, seems in kind of contrast to what he's uh, uh, talking about. Is is, is that something that uh, came from the archives?
1: That famous speech addressing the courier and addressing the diseases that even the courier could fall victim to. That was in the newspapers. We could even read the speech at the time, but that was before I started working on the film. One of the first questions I asked the archive was, was somebody there when he was holding that speech? And they said, yes, we even had four cameras but it's unedited, it's in the archive. So I said, yeah, let me see it. And they let me see all the material. And I thought it was poignant to to see that the Pope was really sticking to his word and was courageous enough to even tell his, his fellow, f- fellow and brother cardinals here, yeah, we are all, we can all stray off and we can all become victims of different diseases and the church is not Im- immune and I thought it makes him so much more believable when he says this to others if he says it to his own church so I think thought it was important to include that scene
0: It's a striking scene because the Cardinal's faces uh, show uh, you know no reaction well or, or if, any, if if you're going to read any reaction to it it uh, it, it seems one of almost kind of quiet resistance.
1: Well, it's both. I've know the material so much, and so there, you see, in some faces they are completely flabbergasted, and they think, "What is this happening to us? What is this thunderstorm here coming over us?" And others, you see, that they're thinking, "Well, exactly. That's what we elected you for—to be so open and to be so, to be so thorough and to be so courageous." There is clearly approval in some eyes, and in other eyes there is just shock.
0: Yeah. So it's both. So you uh, subtitled the film uh, A Man of His Word. and, um, And I wonder what that means to you, that Pope Francis is a man of his word.
1: I feel the title is beautifully open. I liked it because you can almost understand it and bring your own understanding to it. You can understand the his word as God's word, like with a capital H, the man of God's word. But you can also understand that there's a man who who lives what he preaches. There's a man who stands by what he says. There's a man who who doesn't differentiate be, with what he says and what he does and what he lives you. And the word is, after all, the center of this film. It's a movie where the word counts more than the images. It's really about the word. The message of the film is, is the Pope's voice and... That was the concept I wrote when I was asked in the beginning. I, I realized I wasn't interested in a biographical film. wasn't interested in a film about the man as, as a person because he's a very humble human being. I thought that's not interesting. What's interesting is what he stands for and his concerns and his issues. So, And there are addressed to all of us through his words, so I centered the film around the words. I didn't have the title in the beginning. The title came somewhere in the middle of the editing. And I like the title because it it creates a certain expectation of the film, and it's not the wrong expectation. You, you, know, you know you're not going to see a, a film that that's going to bombard you with images. You, can, you know you're going to have to listen to somebody.
0: Mm. I want to ask about your approach to conducting uh, these interviews. Um, the interviews are drawing out his philosophy, but I never heard like a real challenge from you or, uh, you know, a probing or, I mean, is that accurate to say?
1: It's accurate to say. I wanted this film to be at the service of this man's word. I didn't want to make a sort of a critical assessment. I'm not an investigative reporter somebody else could make that film. I wanted this Pope, this extraordinary Pope, this incredibly courageous man, to be able to address people through the movie. So the, the fact that I had this extremely privileged access of four afternoons, four times, a good two hours, that he was gonna to talk to me, I figured that is so precious. That I can I just have that for myself and shoot this so he's talking past the camera to me? I didn't want to appear in it. I didn't want this to make a film about my opinion of the Pope. And that is, if you look at it, that's my, that's my way of making documentaries. I want this, the subject of my film to shine as much as possible and disappear myself. That's how I approached the music of the Buena Vista Social Club. You don't see or hear me in there. That's how I did Pina. This was I did dedicated it to the incredible beauty of Pina Bar's choreographer and wanted that to speak for itself. Or the photography of Sebastiano Salgado. In this case, I figured I, I have a chance to meet this man and have a chance to throw a light on why I thought this was so incredibly important that he called himself Francis after a hero of humanity and after the first ecologist on this planet, a real visionary 800 years ago. So I wanted his word to reach the audience as directly as possible. And my face to face, I figured was wasted if it wouldn't be face to face with everybody. And I couldn't if I couldn't put the audience into that eye contact. So I finally I had done something a little similar with the salt of the earth. Hmm. Um, but we had sort of invented that ourselves. We had used so Se-
0: Salgado is kind of talking to his yeah, photographs. Exactly.
1: So. He's talking into the camera also, but the, watching his photographs no. at the same time. But we used a, A sort of a reverse teleprompter and showed his images and camera was shooting through it. Here for this film, I used the machine that is really built for it by Aaron Morris, who invented it, the the interotron and uh, which made me appear on the screen in front of Pope Francis. He sat in front of that screen and he talked to me. He saw me, he looked me in the eye. It was still very intimate. And by talking to me, he was talking into the camera. I first had a chance to explain this to him on the first day of shooting. I mean, I didn't see him before. And explained the technology, explained to him how it worked. His first question was, "What? how how does this look for you, what what do you see? I showed him my workspace and I realized, he realized it was just the same, only reversed. I saw him on the screen and he realized that the two of us would still meet very intimately face to face but that but there was this technology between us. and then he, he made us forget that technology. He was very intense and we really looked each other into the eye and spoke each time very spontaneously, very directly, without hesitation, very intense. after two hours we were both completely wasted. me more than more because of Spanish it's not my mother tongue so I had uh-huh. to really get into that. I spoke Spanish once as a young man quite well, but my French and Italian and English sort of shoved the Spanish away. So I had to get back into it. And he, of course, because the whole weight of these interviews was on him. And he understood that I didn't want to appear neither as person or as voice. So he incorporated my question into his answers and he was very good at that.
0: And can I ask, he was hearing your questions for the first time? Uh, it's not like he had had them before, because he seems so well prepared for them.
1: I think that's who he is. He's willing to talk to everybody. I did send the whole catalog of questions to um, to the prefect of communication, but just to inform them, they didn't know in which order and which questions I was going to ask at what session. And the Pope really answered them spontaneously and. Sometimes really at length. I mean, I also did the transcripts and subtitled it on my own in English so I'd really know exactly what he said. Mm -hmm. And all the other speeches that appear in the film that we didn't shoot, I really subtitled everything. So I got very intimate with his word and that was truly the basis of the film. That was also going to be the dramaturgy of the film was his word and it had to come out of his issues. There was no structure. While the only help I had to structure the film was the other things I shot, which was these reenactments.
0: You you shot these kinds of scenes bringing the life of St. Francis of Assisi uh, to to some visualization. When I was watching it, I I imagined that you had taken these from some old uh, black and white silent movie that I didn't know of. But I've come to learn that you shot them yourself. (laughs)
1: That was a little bit the intention. I didn't want to draw anybody's attention to the fact that we shot it. It, And I wish I could have found this kind of footage. And in the history of cinema, there's about a dozen films on St. Francis, Silent, as well as 50s by Rossellini, probably the most beautiful one of them. Others in more modern films. And I realized none of these films really helped me to sort of in a condensed form try to convey what the name of Saint Francis meant in the Catholic Church, but also for humanity. It meant a lot to me when I was a little boy.
0: Mm.
1: He was the only saint I could sort of put a name to. Mm. I knew what he stood for. He talked to the birds and he called all animals brothers and sisters. And I that really that really got my imagination. So in a in a way I I knew what that this name stood for, and even when Pope Francis was first introduced on that, and that night on St. Peter's Square, I was.
0: You were alert to it. I was
1: that. excited. Yeah. I was excited before we even. Caught, before you knew, you'd be making a film about him long yeah, before. Yeah, way before that, and before we even saw him, we heard the new pope. Whose name didn't mean anything to me at that moment. But we heard he was calling himself Francis, and that I thought was exciting, I was really, he had my attention before we ever saw him, because that was daring, it took guts to take on that name, and it meant for me, well, it meant if he chooses that name, he knows what we're going to expect from him.
0: I can imagine that this film has the potential to reach audiences who have never watched a Vendor's film uh, before, and uh, and I wonder if that was on your mind uh, at all. No, that was not on my mind. Who do
1: you know who's seeing your films anyway? Some films are not seen much when they come out and have a life afterwards. Some disappear. You never know. It, you can't possibly think about who, who you want to see this film. I knew one thing, though. I knew one thing. this was definitely not a film made for strictly for a Catholic audience. This was not even made a, a film made for a Christian audience. as Pope Francis's message is so much to all people of goodwill and to mankind and as he his concerns really concern us as society as well as a, as people with a who who, are longing for a certain morality in our world at this day and age. So I realized the audience was not Catholic. I, they, my job description also, I figured, was not to make a film for, for a Catholic audience.
0: Hmm. I'm curious about your, the way you choose to spend your energy uh, as a filmmaker, particularly in the last 15 or so years. You've gone a, a lot between fiction and, uh, and documentary. But, Perhaps it's been true for a long time. Your work, but it seems even more intensive in uh, in the last fifteen years. And I wonder if you think about it that way. And and you know, I think it's a big undertaking to to pick what film you're going to do. Whether it's going to be you know a year or so of your life. What is the thinking that goes into making a nonfiction film versus a fiction film? I'm not so sure how much of it is conscious, but some of it certainly
1: is. And whatever film you are take on at the age of 70, I'm now 72. The, this film started really when I started writing the first treatment in the end of his first year in 2013. We shot in 16 and 17 and I edited ever since I started shooting from early 16 on. So it, it really took three, four years. And your question is right, how do you choose them? And, and because you know you only have so many films left in you. There's a certain age when you think you have an infinite amount of films that you can do. Not anymore the case then. And it's true that I've been leaning more towards documentary in the last 10, 15 years. And it's probably, I thought about it a lot. What is my impulse here? And it's probably that even my fictional films from the beginning had, a, had very much of a documentary approach. Hmm. Some of my fictional film were shot without a script, even without any script at all, some of them, and were developed on the road. So there is a certain documentarian approach in it. And that is the kind of filmmaking that gets more and more difficult these days. I couldn't get a film financed anymore today, a fictional film where I said, well, guys, I don't have a script. I have a, an idea.
0: <laughs>
1: and that is entirely out of the question. Yeah. I was able to do that several times in the 70s. And even Wings of Desire never had a real script. And But that has become so much more difficult. Filmmaking is more controlled today, mm. especially in the fundraising by control of script, control of content, uh-huh. by people who read, by people who get involved. And and my kind of fictional filmmaking is getting more and more
0: difficult. Right, that's interesting. But with the documentary, you can say, I just have an idea and they'll- You
1: can, yeah. but I mean, seriously, I mean, I've been teaching for 20 years as well. I know that if you do, if you really wanna, if you don't have a name, but if you start from scratch and you want to get a documentary done as a young filmmaker, you're, ex- you're expected to write a script, mm-hmm. you're expected to write a hundred page treatment, as if you knew already. I mean, the whole excitement of making a documentary is that you don't know, but, and that it's a discovery. But while well, all these things are changing these days, and, and the whole act of filmmaking gets more and more streamlined and controlled. But documentaries are really wide open still and in many ways more adventurous as a process and more open. So I have in the last 10 years dedicated more time to documentaries than fiction.
0: So as we're talking about film, I think of your film Room 666 uh, filmed at the Cannes Film Festival in the early 80s where you're asking different directors to reflect on the state of cinema at that time. Uh, And I wonder if you were to remake a version of that film today, what would the questions you'd be asking about cinema today?
1: There wouldn't be as so much about The future of storytelling, because that is definitely going to go on. It'd be more about in what form are we going to do this in the future, and uh, are we all going to end up alone in front of our monitors or home screens? Are we all going to going to end up seeing content, and that is the new film? That is the new term for movies, mm. content. Are we going to all see, getting used to seeing content alone? Are we, is this process that we have been watching over the last 20, 30 years of a constant alienation and a constant reduction of social events and of, so, and of social activities towards Lonely activities, I mean, in front of computers and on our devices and our iPads, and you call it. And, and cinema was such an incredibly social activity when I started being aware of it. It was, it was like going to church. It was co- communal experience. And it still is today, but that communal experience is being saved more and more to blockbuster movies Mm. and the independent expression and all other forms of movies, they are more and more disappearing from theater context. It's very privileged that a film like mine right now, A Man of His Word, actually gets to theaters. A lot of the films I've seen over the last two, three years that I really liked don't have that privilege. Mm. A lot of more experimental films and a lot of talent now work in movies that... Have different forms of exploitation, and that would be my most burning questions: Where is that going to take us? What is going to be the form, the the kind of reception that movies and storytelling and images? Where is that going to go to? Are we going to go? Are we going to all be more and more lonely in order to receive these messages from other people, or stories, or or? fairy tales or or documentaries so very reality driven things is this, is this, is there a chance that in the future people can still enjoy the traditional movie experience mm-hmm. or is that going to go down the drain that is important important i think because it in the end influences the so called content
0: when you say that it makes me uh, curious uh what are the documentary makers today that um, that you look to or feel excited by? Not to put you too much on the spot, but I just wonder if there are any that come to mind or any films that come to mind that um, that, that impress you. The beauty is today that many people can do things
1: and with little means. And people can make amazing documentaries and they really don't have a big machinery behind them. They can shoot it with consumer technology. They can edit it on their own. I've seen a little film, National Bird. I don't know if you saw that. It's about... National it Bird, the, yeah. Was, did, did
0: you uh, sign on as executive producer yes, or something like that to the yes, film? Yes,
1: because yeah. she came to me and showed me the film and I realized this is not going to get seen much and Errol Morris and I sort of stood behind it. But it was made with peanuts, yeah. you see. It was made by a courageous young woman who, who got this Really important film together, and in a contemporary landscape, there is other films like that. There is mm-hmm. lots of films like that. Wherever you travel in Europe, um, even in Africa and Asia, you, you see filmmakers who understand the chance of today that they can make aerial shots with a little thing they buy for peanuts and a drone, and they have four K cameras and they yeah. and they can edit it at home on their computer. So. There is more and more movies, exciting movies, reality-driven movies all over the planet, but the difficulty now is to get seen. The difficulty is to find the outlet and to get the attention. And that was just one example I men- mentioned with National Park yeah. because I saw it and it could just the world have disappeared.
0: Um, so for my last question, you, you've had a long relationship to America, you've made films in America, you've lived here, you took early inspiration from uh, American cinema. I wonder what you're thinking about uh, America today when we're in this very specific time.
1: It's almost like America is always seen from Europe and when you watch it from outside, it's almost a little science fiction. For me, the state of America is almost like what the rest of the world is going to catch up with. And... uh, That is worrisome at this moment, and we see already in Europe that a lot of the governments start having national tendencies. We are a country, Germany is a country with 11 borders. So we are the country with more borders than anybody else. And more than half of these borders are already with countries who now really openly uh, are representing the America first um, motto in their countries. Hungary first, Poland first. And the return of nationalism is an extremely painful thing. And uh, so my answer was we see something happening in America that then catches on, which really troubles me because the idea of America that I really cherish it lived here for 15 years and, and I love America for what it stands for and what it always stood for and for its constitution and for its openness and for the fact that it's been such a melting pot of people from all over the world who did have a chance here to become somebody and that this right now is coming to a drastic end really troubles me because it means it's it's bad news for a lot of other countries and the return of nationalism for me is a disease that i did not i thought we were over this when we moved into the 21st century i thought this was behind us and that is coming back in a big way in Je- in europe just as well as in in other parts of the world is really troubling me and and that's one of the reasons why i'm so happy that i was able to make this film with Pope francis because because his voice is clearly Uh, An an alternative voice to that. He really calls for a different equality of people on our planet, for a different fraternity and for a different feeling of responsibility. He's really calling for a moral revolution and he's entitled to do so. And a lot of our leaders in Europe, just as well as in America or China or Russia, morally, they have no qualification to lead (music) us.
0: to thank Vim Vendors for speaking with me. His new film, Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, is now playing in theaters distributed in the U.S. by Focus Features. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers, You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week from WNYC. You'll find over 160 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.